Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the Heritage Foundation's Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I just wanted to take the opportunity to remind everyone in-house to silence their cell phones and encourage those watching online to submit questions at any time by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Hosting today's program is uh, the founder of Heritage Foundation, Dr. Ed Fullman. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium today, and particularly to welcome our guest speaker. Deepak Lal has an extraordinary uh, CV, which uh, I was going to say you can read on the inside back cover of the book, but alas, the book is not available, but that's another story. Uh, Deepak's educated in, uh, in London in India, then at Oxford. He holds chairs even today, uh, two chairs, uh, one at UCLA, uh, the Coleman Chair Emeritus in Economics, and one at University College London uh, Emeritus also. He has been the senior economist at the World Bank. He has been uh, very much involved in what we, uh, we call IFIs, International Financial Institutions, around the world. Um, he started life as a member of the Foreign Service. Um, if he lived in any one place long enough, you could say he was part of at least one swamp. But uh, uh, because he has homes at the moment in uh, Delhi, London, Los Angeles, and I think at the Cosmos Club here in Washington... Uh, it's hard to really pin him down. This book, I will say I got a very early copy of it about a month ago, and it wasn't until a couple days ago that I started reading it. And it's amazing because what Deepak does is so absolutely congruent with what many of us have been saying, only he does it with much, uh, much more rigor and uh, intellectual uh, enthusiasm, uh, starting out with intellectual curiosity in terms of pointing out what the real challenges for the future are. And uh, I think he and I certainly agree what that real challenge is, because I should say that he also has been a visiting professor at Fudan in Shanghai and the University of Beijing. And uh, so he knows up close what the major challenge is. I've just given away your secret, what the major challenge is. Uh, Professor Lal is the former president of the Mont Pelerin Society, uh, a well-known international uh, economist in so many different areas, and this is, I think, his 24th or 25th book. Deepak, 
Will you come up and tell us about war or peace? First, let me apologize that the book is not available. Uh, and this is Oxford. I'd given up publishing with Oxford many, many years ago because I wrote a book for them, which is called The Hindu Equilibrium. And my wife, we were in L.A. there. She went to the local borders and wanted a copy. And the chap said, no. She said, what was it, where, what's, what's the subject matter? It's economics. He said, you know, not published. So she said, well, so you asked the title. Oh, Hindu. So it must be religion. So she went up, and of course, in the religious section. So I was so pissed off. I was, <laughs> I was in New York, so I went to see the, you know, the big honcho OUP to protest. And I saw on his thing, he was out for five minutes, a little memo in which some youngster of his, his office had written, OUP must do something about promoting its books. This chap, this big honcho, had written, OUP just makes books available. It does not promote them. But now they don't even make books available. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because this chap had sent me an email, I think at the end of, I mean, they came out in India in June, and he'd sent me an email saying, oh, it'll all be ready to be distributed and this thing from mid-August. So as I said, I was meeting, and then I just found out from Bridget that he said that, no, they don't have any copies yet, which is ridiculous. Anyways, let me just tell you about the book, and I think as it's not available, maybe the best thing for me is to tell, read out part of the preface, which tells you what the book's about. Uh, I started this book. I mean, I've been going to China, China I, think, I think it must be the mid... 1980s, yeah. And I've been going to uh, Fudan in Shanghai in Beijing. So it's been incredible, actually. Because I've seen this incredible transformation of this place. And I got to know some of the politicians pretty well. Now, in 2011, there was a conference at Fudan in which they had not just economists, international relations people, all sorts of people there. And in the middle of this, a chap got up, an army general, and he, to, he began by saying, you know, various things. And he said, I don't see why the Western Pacific should be an American lake. And then he went on to say, well, it's time now that we should move the Americans back to Guam. And then his final statement was, this might require a short, sharp war. Whereupon someone got up, quite rightly, a foreigner, not me, someone else got up. And to the last time someone tried that, see what happened. Uh, and, uh, but that's the first time. Then I heard, essentially, I was quite shocked by this, because I'd argued in an earlier book that, in fact, one of the main beneficiaries of the American le le liberal international economic order was China. It's tried freeriding, and that's what it did. And to see that they wanted to replace the American PACs by the by Chinese ones seemed absurd to me. So this could, this was going to be a very short book. Because one of the things they were promoting then was so-called Beijing consensus in opposition to what's called the Washington consensus. They found this new way of uh, running the world through authoritarian capitalism. So it was going to be a short book to 2011, and then I started reading and thinking about it. And as soon as events unfolded, it became quite clear that it had to be a, a much, much wider book. Uh, and then, of course, what happened this is one of the most important themes actually in the book, that uh, we saw towards the, I think certainly the second Obama administration, that there was an unwinding 
a willing unwinding of the American packs. And this is largely because Obama was waiting for the arc of history to decide the future of the world. And he had actually given up the role, they call it a super cop or whatever you like, the superpower role. He's not willing to do any military thing. And the arc of history now is just about to envelop Idlib. I saw my newspaper today. And the Russians, the Iranians, Turks are watching. They're about to uh, join Assad to bomb Idlib, three million people. So I fear for them. Anyway, so essentially what we've got since then is global disorder. This is now described as a multipolar world. <laughs> now, this is a <laughs> oxymoron. What it really means is global disorder. So we are going back to what, what the world was like, I think, before the British Empire was established, when you had a huge number of European states vying for uh, power, some sort of global power. This is not settled until the Brits established the hegemony of the Napoleon Wars. So effectively, this book uh, is really expanded now to look at both geopolitics, geoeconomics, and the last part asks, are we on the road to a third world war? Now, why the last bit is important, the Pope recently expressed an opinion, which I think amongst many others, this one is probably right. He says, we're now in a piecemeal third world war, currently. And then if you look at the reading, I mean, there, there are two very good books which were written about the First World War, Margaret McMillan, I forgot the other chap's name. And they have now recently commented, and they say it's very surprising, they find it quite amazing, that today the world looks very, very much like what it did before the First World War, and parts of this before the Second World War. The book is trying to explain how we come to this past. Remember, 1991, when the evil empire was over, everybody said peace and prosperity forever, and our democracy is won globally, this thing, and here, in 30 years, we're now down the tube and you're looking at another third world war, possibly. And the sense that this book covers this, so you have a bit on uh, geopolitics, which tries to look at. <coughs> uh, and their ge geography is crucial, I think, in determining the various strategic options for these powers. So the people, the, who are the powers vying for this? And we will leave with League of Dictators, Russia, China, Iran, Turkey is in this, and India, of course, is caught, caught in the middle of all this vortex. So it's, uh, it's a pretty nasty world in that sense. Now, the importance of geography is important not just for culture and domestic politics, but also various ideologies. So this also discusses uh, democratic liberalism, nationalism, religious fundamentalism. And if you like, these, this is the emotional grammar of the various powers vying for supremacy. Then the second, the second part of the book, because I believe that this, certainly the Chinese, I'm absolutely certain is the case, but many of the other parts, parts, after the great financial crisis, they took this to mean that effectively America was finished economically and this global power is gone. And that's when they really, like this 2011 thing I told you about the general, that really affected the attitude. So it's quite important to see whether in fact uh, that, you know, what, what the causes of the Great Recession were, how it fared, and is this, is this right, this whole story which is going around, that now we need to follow this authoritarian capitalism that the Russians and Chinese are advocating rather than 
what used to be called the Washington Consensus. Uh, so that is, uh, now here there, there is a battle going on still, and these, this is between the two major emerging powers, China and India, and this is great importance, obviously. And at the moment, the race between the tortoise and the hare is the one by the hare, which is China. But I, but I argue that, in fact, the Chinese economy is much more fragile than people claim it is. And India, despite its noisy democracy and you know, a lot of missteps, etc., has got a much more brighter future in terms of fundamentals of China. So it'll probably catch up by the 2030s if, uh, if the Chinese don't start another world war. Uh, and then on the third world, the th last part is the prospect of a third world war. And here it seems to me the real danger, I mean, though you've got Iran, you've got Russia, they're all trying to challenge US hegemony. Both of those, I think that it's very unlikely. They don't have the economic and military strength to actually do that. The only real challenger is China. And they're playing this rather, rather subtle game in uh, trying to sabotage or, or take over from the US. Their big hope is that just as the Americans were, as it were, handed uh, hegemonic power by the Brits, that the Americans will do this too. So keep hearing about, you know, G2 power system running the world and so on and so forth. The trouble is that <laughs> Lee Kuan Yew put this as the best. He said, you know, the Chinese think that they're still the middle of the middle empire. And he says, you know, there's not a hope in hell anyone wants to join them. So they're only two allies at the moment are North Korea and Pakistan. Doesn't give you much hope that this is going to be in a new liberal order, free trade and all this sort of stuff. So the last part of the book is really making a case for saying, you know, that they've overreached themselves, tremendous hubris. It could lead to a, to a lot of flashpoints, South China Sea, Indo-Park water, all sorts of things, where in fact you could have uh, some incident, glass-sparking war. And that then leads to my main conclusion, which is now, hopefully, that Obama's gone. I hope this new US, US administration will be slightly more robust and take on this its superpower role more seriously. And to contain China, what you really need, and it's beginning to happen slowly, is get a coalition of, I mean, Japan, Indonesia, question mark. Philippines has just joined the Chinese for some absurd reason. But Vietnam, Australia, and India, this can actually form a coalition which could take on China. And I think that's the best hope, if that happens, that the Chinese feel that they can't, they can't just walk over the whole of Southeast Asia and the South Asia, that that could prevent the Third World War. So that's the theme. I'm sorry the book's not here, but I think the flyers which tell, and I see that they're actually, I don't know whether they're trying to make up for the fact they're in the book. They're now offering <coughs> a 30% discount on the And I, I, I think if, I hope you like the book once you get hold of it and read it. Let me kick off the discussion, Deepak, by yeah. asking uh, the obvious, uh, one might say, Calvinistic or uh, predictable question. Uh, 
you're Indian, of course you would look at this in a, in a, from a biased perspective. Well, it, 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 well, uh, let, let's very put this. I mean, if I, if I had written this about 10 years ago, I'd have said there's no hope for India whatsoever. And secondly, at that time, I mean, I, like many others, thought China, as, as we got richer, would become democratic and actually become a liberal. Yeah, you and I thought about yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, in which case, it's not something I would have, and I would certainly not have better in India. But now it seems to me partly, partly the internal problems. The fact that now, so obviously, going back to the old imperial dream, I think the thing now really is the race between the two. And if the US, I mean, if you get this coalition, I mean, that's not just military, but also economic. That should make a difference. Mm. So it's not, it's not uh, chauvinism. It's uh, trying to look at this as cold-bloodedly as one can. Abandon, and abandon authoritarianism in politics the way it had to some extent in the in the economy, and this hasn't happened. So my exactly the opposite, right? So my hope and and actually expectation was wrong, um, which is another humbling lesson in trying to think about the world a prioristically. But um, is there anything that um, a concerted strategy by the U.S. government or this group of allies with Australia, India that you mentioned, could do to try to liberalize China by, by, by somehow getting this information um, to the people that this government rigorously censors and suppresses? I think I think it's such a firm control over the Internet now. I mean, I, was, I, I had a friend of mine, I was visited Beijing, Peking University, and walking down the street, and suddenly a loudspeaker very loudly said, Mr. XYZ, you're crossing the road illegally. So they've got all this facial recognition, all this sort of stuff, and all this information. It didn't instantaneously. It's like a surveillance. The best, best example of this now, what China is doing, is 1984. And they've, got, they've got all the instruments, and they're, they're not going to give that up. But my uh, the thing at the point at the other point where it might uh, become liberal has nothing to do with the internet. It's just that you see, war, China has a history of warlords. Now there are no warlords at the moment, except the Chinese Communist Party now is incredibly unstable, particularly after all these purges. So there are all these princelings within the CCP now, who he's made enemies of, and they're so paranoid. Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, this new forbidden city where they all live. Around that, there are three separate security agencies who are not allowed to talk to each other. And the only person they could talk to is Z. So he's terrified. He's terrified of uh, a coup. So my guess is that what you're going to get is, you know, it's not settled. His, his, fa his father now. Is put above Mao Zedong, so the old Chinese dynasty is and it's very unstable.
Yeah, I thought it was, yeah. So was I. We all wrong. Yes, that we were all wrong about the liberalizing effects of technology and the internet. Uh, the state turns out to be a very, if you combine awesome. technology and coercion, you've really got something. And so the empire has struck back. But there was another part of our thinking uh, that's a little less, it's a little less clear to me why we were wrong. Uh, and that is that as a society became wealthier and more educated and you've got hundreds of millions of middle-class people all of a sudden uh, in China, uh, that there wasn't uh, a, a natural evolution toward more democratic forms. Uh, and a, a society where we have hundreds of millions of educated, smart, uh, impressive, middle-class people who are perfectly happy to live in a society where that's run essentially by a single dictator right now for life. That, that's that's a new phenomenon. But I think and that's, I don't that's and unfair. I don't have an explanation for it. Well, one one of the experts, you know, I've I've been going through to China. This is before Tiananmen, and who's that chap? The secretary was on sack, Yao Xinhuang, the general secretary who lost his job because he came out. Now he was, I knew him, and I you know he fought exactly this. He said all the youngsters. Oh, right. Yes, I remember. That was cracked out. The what the thing I think the real story there is the CCP is so paranoid about what happened in Russia. All they want to do is to make sure that, they, and they will do anything to prevent that. And that, but the thing is, what you're right is these there are a huge number of people that are middle class, well educated, who are in fact silent dissenters. So I don't think the Chinese Communist Party system will last. How it explodes? I mean, the two people who I who I trust, you know, something. David Shambo, and who's the one at Harvard Day? McFarker. And two years ago, they actually had our NPS meeting in Hong Kong, and they both said, and yeah, they, they keep in touch with David Shambo, they said, no, no one in the Communist Party believes in communism. Only the leaders are terrified of this. <laughs> we don't believe in communism. It's going to fall apart. But they said that in any case, the question now is not if the CCP will they face the same uh, you know, future as the uh, Russian party, but when? And I think that's really the question. So essentially, if you if you look just cold-blooded at its future, I mean, you can see this, you can see lots of ways in which things will be destabilized. This is one. The second, unlike I mean, they've got a huge gender imbalance. An economy of 30, 30 million. Now, if you look at Chinese history, most of these revolts against the center have been by what they call bare branches. The South point about the old days, so you had huge gender imbalance, and every now and then, these members of the underclass, male, would go out and show their dissatisfaction in various ways. My great fear is, if that happens, what they're going to do is arm them and send them to Taiwan or the Indochina. But that's another destabilizing factor. And the third, of course, is if the economy slows, you know, that means what they're frightened of again is discontent, gender So if you try and look at the future of China, I think it's very unstable. I mean, India, you, I mean, if people keep saying, well, India, India's had a messy democracy, you'll continue hastening slowly, in my favorite phrase. But it's not, it's not going to collapse, no matter what happens. But China is a real danger.
Thank you. Um, I have a question about uh, how India would uh, uh, commit in the coalition. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Munihito Nakatani. I'm a student from Georgetown University. Um, I understand your conclusion in the book is that a, a coalition would form, you know, uh, core being the United States and India and Japan and all the other Asian countries would come to that coalition. But I also understand that India also has a history of a leniency towards non-alliance, um, more like a free hand in diplomacy. And I, I understand that um, India would also be feel like threat towards uh, the rising powers of China. But I think there's an opposing force of like the traditional um, foreign policy in India. And I, I want to know how you envision that uh, future coalition would it be like a NATO alliance kind of real um, hard alliance or would it be more like a soft, like a, just not really like an alliance? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, given the history between particularly the U.S. And, the, and India, it goes back a long way. When the Henry Kissinger sent a warship when India was trying to liberate Bangladesh. And that, you know, there's, there's books written about this. That, well, that background is there. That makes any formal alliance very unlikely. In my view, a lot, there are a lot of people here, I've forgotten their names, who can't agree. They've been, what they're promoting is they say it's more like a business. If you even disagree about those things, that's definitely easy enough. Uh, yeah, pretty close alliance. So the main thing here is military. That's the thing. And now there are a number of, uh, I don't know how many of you even said, I think there are four agreements with the US and India. This goes back to my own thing, but maybe it's continued now. Which they want first to have interoperability in, in, uh, amongst the military. Second, intelligence sharing. And now all these are bilateral facts <laughs> with which, you know, they've, I mean, I don't know, they've, they've concealed the fact that there is, in fact, element of an alliance. So that'll continue. Now, the, 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 the Japanese, of course, are very keen on, on this. Uh, they call it quadrilateral, you know, quadrilateral. Uh, the Americans, the Australians, are the people who want to appease them. And that goes back to the fifth year. You know, like the Chinese being, uh, a dream based on China's investment of Chinese and minerals and so on. But, but there's now a dissenting faction. You know, the chap called White, I think, is by the name of I mean, I, I have a thing in the book in the last chapter. And this is the uh, Arabian book by E.H. Clark, the French E.H. Clark. And he made a case for appeasing Germany, the poor Germans. And they were frozen down to equal rights. And then, of course, all the other areas, including <laughs> Morgan Powell, Dudley Bowles, all said this chap was completely immoral. He wants to give up the liberties to. That is now the new generation of president. So the Chinese, but the, uh, the other the other part of the Chinese Japan is changing the agenda to Western Now the UN, some leftist dignitaries, I mean, the notion of odious death, that 
There are all these things in the air. I mean, I don't know which piece. So the world now, both the, <coughs> how do you the developing world, if you like, plus the old great powers, they're all starting up again. And I think that, and I just hope the new, the new US administration, if you went to a new end, you have to, you have to condemn them, or maybe you pay before. You seem to refer to the new U.S. administration several times, and you talked about Obama during the second administration pulling back. What gives you confidence that this U.S. administration will take a different position from what Obama has been doing? Well, it's, it, this is just, I mean, you know, the only, the only thing is the rhetoric has changed. And he's not talking about the arc of history. He's not talking about saying that, you know, the single world will come to die. And he's taking action. I don't know how coherent, cogent, well thought that is. But I think there are certain, uh, there are certain, there are certain people working for him. I know John Bolton, he's a sensible chap. Matt is from all, all accounts, is a sensible chap. Now, who knows? Maybe they might be sacked tomorrow for all I know, but I know at the moment there are people there who have more sense and are willing to play the old superpower role. So it's, uh, Syria versus Iraq. What? Who? Syria. No, but Syria, they've all cried. I mean, Syria was, look, this whole Iraq, this whole Middle East thing, it goes back to when Obama refused to enforce an SFO agreement on the Outside of Because if you had a beachhead, look at the Russians. The Russian wants four little bloody forces in an airport on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And they, they've leveraged that the sense to become a big, big player in the Middle East. With Kissinger had made sure they were not. So we're back again. And they start to that. Then the second force is Syria then. And he had his red line. And all he had to do is get Turks wanted it, the Syrian opposition wanted it, they just put up a no-fly zone. Which they did in Saddam is in part in Afghanistan. And he agreed. This interview with his early on, he just stood it up. And people might be laughing. Dr. Lal, my name is Kami Bhattam, with the Pakistani spectator. And uh, I know Dr. Funner for a couple of decades, so I want to borrow his question about your bias. Uh, we have more wars between India and Pakistan, even though we, we came from the same belly. Uh, we have less peace. Do you think that we are less imaginative? Uh, we, we are kind of covered people that are, you, you think Churchill was very smart, who knew that we Desi, Dr. Uh, Fulner Desi mean brown people. We Desi people have very Hard big. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we might have empty stomach, we have, might have empty pocket, but we have very, very big ego. So Churchill knew this, and this is the reason he left Kashmir. I mean, he shouldn't have divided India in the first place. And I agree with that. I, 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 so, so my yeah. question is that how can we resolve this issue like Kashmir? 
I mean, I prefer to have India, Pakistan, just one country like it used to be before Churchill did this evil thing. But if he did it, and now Pakistani generals have a lot of interest, they don't want to have peace. And same thing about Indian generals. They don't want to have peace because they would be out of business. So how do you think we can resolve this issue? Or do you think this new guy on the block, uh, Imran Khan, I'm asking you this question because you are more affected between the conflict between India than me because I've been here for since 85 and I went to Pakistan only three times. So you are more affected. Do you think this new guy, Imran Khan, who has a lot of courage, who is very much liked in India as well, he would be able to resolve this Kashmir issue? Well, look, I think, I think you, I, 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 you know the answer is some people say he's an army stooge. Other people say he's the only hope because he'll take on the army. I don't know the answer to that. But I'll tell you what I recommend in my book. Firstly, this whole India—I think the main thing now to this, this thing, India to just move all their troops from the Indo-Pak border. They, they, they're not going to happen there, and move it to the Chinese-Indo-Sino-Indian border, so the generals don't have the excuse. Say so these Indians are going to cross the border from this place or that place. Hence, we need all this. Now it's true there's still a terrorist coming, but you know terrorists all over the world. So you can't—you can't just run your whole country, your whole life based on the fact that terrorists coming in. And, you know, a few people get that thing. But essentially, the politicians now, someone has to take the guts. And I was hoping Modi would do it. But now he's in political trouble because he's not delivered his promises in the economy. But that someone has to take the thing and say, look, we're going to move these troops. I mean, Manmohan Singh would have done it if he still stayed in power, even though when he tried to make nice noise about Pakistan, there was a tremendous police with a political backlash against it. But that's the answer because there is nothing there. There is no issue, actually. I mean, you know, Pakistan now, I mean, people keep saying this. They, they, the, the disparity in military and economic power between the two countries is so huge. And you're not a hope in hell of Pakistan actually becoming a serious threat to it. Just move your troops. So, you know. Hi. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Hi. Carl Golovit. Uh, my question would be whether... Um, there might be a monetary or a, well, the global monetary system is fundamental to the potential for peace or war. That uh, our system of money now is just credit borrowed into existence at usury, and when certain one, you know, certain nations can inflate how much they create to militarize or exert influence around the world, as through the petrodollar system, it's destabilizing. Whereas at the end of World War II, the the Bretton Woods Agreement were all the currencies were reconciled to gold, and it, there was a disincentive for the U.S. to overinflate. Uh, that was meant to provoke, pr promote stability. So uh, a question of whether there could be a new Bretton Woods, a geopolitically neutral Bretton Woods, where, where nations could uh, focus the use of their currencies for maintaining uh, order and development within their borders and not pursue power by expanding the flow of their currency Across borders, I'm not sure. That I, well, the, the first is the feasibility of this. I don't think the current, in fact, currently any international agreement is frowned upon by all sorts of people, including the current president. Here. So I don't think there's any hope in hell of getting another Bretton Woods. And I mean, you know, uh, you know, the Chinese wouldn't want that because they want their yuan. They want the Americans want the dollar. So I think there's not a hope in hell of that happening. Whatever the arguments pro and con there. And the second point is that at the moment, given the existing situation, okay, the fact that the dollar is still reigns supreme, that's a very powerful instrument 
in the U.S. hands. So taking on this League of Dictators is already happening. You've seen Iran, Russia, and now China. They're using the dollar weapon to actually bring some of these people to heel. How long will it last, I don't know. But at the moment, I wouldn't give that up. Myron Ebel, CEI. Uh, Deepak, uh, you've talked about the, the withdrawal of, uh, uh, during the Obama administration of the United States as the, the keeper of the world's peace or as a superpower. But part of that was due to the discrediting of, of, of the kind of Bush adventurism Oh, yeah. And and the tremendous waste of, of American treasure and lives in places where we had no business yeah, wasting the, things. I, now, I, I'm wondering if you could discuss where the, the, the Trump administration might pull us back into a new responsible position and to sell it to the American people after what we've lived through with the Bushes. Okay, let me give you my answer to that. That's in it. It's a controversial question. I, I, you know, essentially now, the Middle East, there's no role for outsiders in the Middle East. They were fighting each other. It's like a 30 years war. Okay, now the, the Saudis have put together a Sunni coalition that the Iranians are trying to create, Shia coalition. So we have actually endured another battle of Karbala. Okay, now given that, there's been no dogs in that fight. I mean, who do you support, a Sunni or a Shia faction? What I want is a cordon sanitaire around the whole of the Middle East. Because the only thing we're frightened of, these people come, jihadis coming and murdering people on our streets. So you put a cordon sanitaire, and you last, you know, some trade you can allow, but individuals. If you go there, you stay there, and you don't come out until they fought their battle of Karbala, and then they you know, establish enlightenment values or what have you. That's my answer. I don't have any better than that. But you can't. I mean, it's stupid to think that you can actually tame this region by external force. No one can do it. The Chinese now, I see, see are trying to intervene in the Afghan war. They think pacified. That's completely utterly stupid. They'll have more jihadi terrorists in Xinjiang in Moscow if they do that. So I don't think, I don't think there's a, I think we just have to take this ground. I mean, there might have been an answer 10, 15 years ago. But the whole thing is unraveling, and there's nothing you can do about it. Hi, uh, Alad Vaida from the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. My question is, uh, what more do you think that the United States can do to push back on Chinese encroachment in the South China Sea? Thank you. Well, that's one of the flashpoints. Really serious. You see, one of the things, if you look at a map, those islands are fine. I mean, they're, you know, it's troubling to have the, uh, the Philippines and all these people. But, they could, that's it. but if you look at that as a general threat to the Indo-Pacific, and you look at the Malacca Straits, and then you look at the Andaman and Lakshadweep, Lux- which are all being made in the basin. That fleet sitting, those submarines fleet sitting in the Hainan Island is locked up. Where's it going to go? So hence the belt, road of belt, etc. And that's on the way. So the, the main, you know, that's why this general thing was, you know, we'll do what, what Japan did. They're facing the same threat. They hold their matter, all their raw material, oil, all this comes through the sea. So unless you can control that, and they want to take over I mean, The other thing which people forget is Taiwan, I mean, it might not be a formal ally, but you know, 
it's like a huge aircraft carrier sitting just outside. And I was, I was in Taiwan when it was last year. And there are two things I didn't know. Firstly, they had already on the way of uh, creating a bomb, and had the Americans pulled the plug on. The second thing is, one of their plans is the Chinese tried to take it over, and the Indians have also got this. That Three Gorges Dam is completely vulnerable to what the Brits did to the dam busters in the Second World War. I've seen reports, because you know, you have, a, you have to have official mentions about and the Chinese have poo-pooed this, you know, this can't ever happen. So forget about Sun Tzu, forget about great Chinese, you know, strategic this and the other. I mean, there's so many things which you can do. Uh, John Sitalides with Trilogy Advisors. I'd like to ask you about a different region, sir. Uh, the flyer that's handed out uh, references Europe as an outpost of the United States. Do you see any viable role for the NATO alliance in the military containment of China? And what is your sense of the prospects for the future cohesiveness of the European Union? Europe, the European Union is a, a virtual German empire. <laughs> so essentially what Germany has succeeded what it has been doing and unfortunately this realization now is creeping in and the Brits are the first one to leave or the Italian I mean the East European so essentially my future of the EU itself I think is not very bright okay NATO I think will last for the following reason that all these countries in Europe, East Europe are ex-Soviet slaves if you like and they don't want to go back to They'll continue, Germany will continue, and I don't think there is much chance of the U.S. pulling out of NATO, despite what Trump said. And the main purpose is not against China, it's really Russia. That's the thing that is going to continue that way, and I think that will last up until certainly until Putin dies. Hello, Stan Yaginski from the Daniel Morgan Graduate School of National Security. I had a question um, about... Um, uh, Russian-Chinese relation and the way Trump seems to play this card against China, even though he has the whole problem with him being labeled a Russian almost agent. Uh, um, do you think he's trying to use Russia against China? I, well, I'm not sure. You know, that, that's too subtle. But you know, the, the thing about the Russian-Chinese relationship, one I can't know the Russian or Chinese commentator, they describe this is a relationship in which you've got a boa constrictor, you know, wrapping itself around the so-called seeming giant and going to eat it up. And I think that is true. The so I don't think that can last. Because already the Chinese now are encroaching into large, large parts of territorial. And there's an old treaty with China ceded lots of parts of that thing. So they, could, they, they can all be unwound. I don't think that's a lasting relationship. It will continue as long as they think they can, you know, beat out the Americans. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about Russia. Russia is a paper tiger. <coughs> Demographically, economic, it's a paper tiger. Huge country, and it's got all these other threats. The real, the real threat is China. Russia is not a threat.
Uh, thank you, Terry Miller from the Heritage Foundation. Could you just comment a little bit on the um, trade uh, rivalry between the United States and China and the administration's attempts to uh, really uh, put the screws to China and um, and even uh, damage them in some way economically. Is that a positive strategy uh, to contain China in this um, potential war you're talking about? Well, well, it depends which part of this. You know, I, I, that, as far as my judgment, this tariff game he's playing, this nuclear game, he's using this as a way. I mean, I tell you the most revealing thing which happened in this you remember the G20 meeting in, in uh, wherever it was, where the EU and all these other people, and he, he put on these tariffs on these aluminum and steel projects. And there's a video, you can see it's here on YouTube, where Merkel is standing screaming at Trump, saying, why are you putting on all these tariffs in cars? And I say to you, and he looks around quite calmly and he says, you know, our tariffs on your Mercedes car is 2.5%. Your tariffs on such and such, so she looks, she looks the best. She said, what I want is no tariffs and no subsidies. Now, the, the, the point of that is, and I don't know if he knows the history of this, the point of this is, this goes back to the 80s, when the US was quite committed to WTO, multilateral rules, etc. At that stage, I think agriculture was going to come onto the table, and the EU was absolutely adamant that they wouldn't do anything about it. And that's when the US started the dual track, and you've got all this PT all this stuff coming on. So if he's going to, I don't know where he's going to do it. If he's going to go back to saying, look, forget all this WTO <laughs> mandated PTOs, etc. Let's have genuine free trade. I'd be free. So it's just a question, I don't know, what game is he playing? You people know much better than I do. Seika from Jewish Fund University. So now is there trading what happening with like so-called trading what happening with US and China? What do you think if China lost their like so-called loss again the the trading wall, do you think their their market gonna be liberal or the like media gonna be liberal than before? Well it depends depends how far they go. You know, I mean that's a trust. the thing is how far are they gonna go? Uh, I mean essentially trade wars damage both sides. And then you know, you can even try to also give Napoleon tried to swing around Europe. And they never work ultimately. But if this is a strategic game to take on the Chinese, make them uncomfortable, what have you, well, so be it. And the fact that. is, they've got $600 billion <laughs> coming into us, and we've got $50 <laughs> billion going to that. Yeah. Let's keep drinking. <laughs> yeah, so that's just, that's just, that's just. Anyway, but I, I think it's a game he's playing, and I don't know whether it'll work or not. I have no idea whether it'll work. In fact, it's been a uh, wonderful conversation. I uh, regret leaving you the last time. Uh, <laughs> don't publish with OUP. <laughs> I'm not. I'd stop. I'd stop for many uh, years. Make mistake. We will certainly make sure that they are made available. Thank you very, very much for being with us. <coughs> Thank you.